Welcome to Transformative Talk. Each episode is hosted by a different graduate student in Dr. Haddad's courses at the University of Texas in San Antonio. Join us today as we explore how educators can use critical social theories to transform themselves and their classrooms. Educators can get real and share real-life experiences, near misses, and big little wins. This is Amy and Gabby, your hosts for this episode of Transformative Talk. In this episode, we're going to talk about the controversial F word. No, we're not talking about the vulgar word used in society today. We're talking about the word that makes some people uncomfortable and brings out the passion in others. That's right. We are talking about feminism. Before we talk about how feminism ties into education, we want to discuss the history of feminism, how we view feminism, and how others may view it as well. One of the first questions Dr. Haddad asked us at the beginning of the semester was, are you a feminist? And before reading the essays this week, I really didn't understand 100% what a feminist was. I knew what the media portrayed as feminism, and I think I had my own definition of what feminism was. What about you, Amy? Yeah, much like you, Gabby, I had some uh, preconceived notions about what feminists were, who they were. And so I've learned so much more through the readings that we've done in class and discussions with classmates and uh, some of the videos that we've watched, some of our assignments. And so I'm really pleased to to learn all of this and to learn a a little bit more about feminism. So, you know, based on that, based on what I've learned, I'd have to say I'm a feminist. I believe in uh, females having equal rights and um, for there to be gender equality and um, and ending gender bias. And so, yes, I'd have to agree, I'm a feminist. I agree as well. Um, Our classmates actually answered this question as well. So we're gonna go ahead and read some of their responses. So one of our classmates, Aaron, he wrote, I would definitely say that I am a feminist. I am a feminist at home for my wife, my daughter and my sons. I want them all to know that prejudging someone based on their gender is asinine. My daughter's stone cold reserve keeps me honest. I consider current events through her lens and adjust mine accordingly. I'm also a feminist at school. I work with mostly women teachers in English and I'm cognizant of how my role as a father and husband informs my role as a teacher. I don't feel the need to resolve the frustrations we share, but rather I listen to concerns and share points. I really enjoyed reading Erin's quick write about feminism. And another classmate, Lily, wrote, I define feminism as a set of attitudes one has for themselves and toward each other uh, and toward others. I define it as being kind to one another, respectful, and most of all, patient. Because for some of us, feminism is a journey of self-discovery and being pressured and bullied into thinking about feminism as one definition, in my opinion, does not embody the spirit of, of change. And I I, uh, definitely find myself along the same lines as Lily does. Yes, I like where she said feminism is a journey of self-discovery. Taking this class, it's opening up so much stuff to us, right? We're reading and we're questioning things. Um, So I know one of the quotes said that it takes a lot of courage to study feminism. So I definitely agree with her where she says it's a journey of self-discovery. The next reading is from our peer, Bonnie, who gives her thoughts on feminism in the Padlet that I see feminism on a smaller scale, I think, than like equality for all and we're all going to earn the same amount of money and all that. But I see it as um, having a freedom from restriction and having a freedom of choice in what we do, what we say, what we wear. Um, And 
So it's interesting because um, years ago we, we started with men controlling us and telling us what we should and shouldn't do and that women belong in the kitchen and, and we're put on earth to be mothers and all of that. And then feminism comes around and we're like fighting for each other and we're holding each other accountable and we're protecting each other and all of that. Um, and now, now we're being told what is a feminist. Now I'm being told that I'm not a feminist because I took my husband's last name when I got married. Well, you're a feminist. You wouldn't do that, right? Um, so I just feel like there's, there's no escape, but if we're constantly like spreading this message and, and videos like that and trying to convince each other that it's worth our time, then, then we, we protect ourselves from that, that patriarchal privilege that tells us that we are, we are defined by, so we're, we have restrictions and rules in place that even feminists have rules, you know? So I felt like I felt like on the smaller scale of the more like intrapersonal like objectification of women and things like that. That's how I see feminism on a more personal level. I think. I appreciate Bonnie's brave and honest response to whether she considers herself a feminist because I think many people are reluctant to agree with feminism as they may think that they have to fit a certain stereotype to be a feminist. There's not necessarily a right way to be a feminist as we're all on a journey in our growth as people including feminists. So Gabby and I want to go ahead and share the history of feminism, and it has been described as forming in three different ways. Well, Gabby, uh, would you like to go ahead and share your thoughts on the first wave of feminism? Yeah, so my takeaways from the first wave was that it happened, you know, way back when there was a lot of movements going on, so such as the suffrage movement, the abolition movement, the temperance movement, um, but most importantly, the women were trying to get their right to vote right, um, kind of putting the message out there that women are people too, you know, we matter. Um, and what I found interesting th doing some other research was that there was this document called the Declaration of Sentiments that was made in 1848 and it's said to mark the start of the women's rights movement in the United States. Um, and it, I'm gonna go ahead and read their names. It's written by Lucretia Mott, Martha C. Wright, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, and Marianne McCl McClintock. And basically what they did was they took the Declaration of Independence and everywhere that it said the word man, they made sure to go and put and woman like right after it, kind of just saying, you know, we're here, our voices want to be heard or they should be heard. Um, and we want the rights that everybody else has. So that's just kind of what I got from the first wave. Yeah. And with the first wave, it's interesting. I was just thinking as you were speaking that, you know, although feminism has come through three waves and um, we'll talk about a fourth wave later. Um, people who are just beginning their journey in feminism really are making strides in just in just the first things that were that were uh, some people felt were conquered in feminism. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, that just kind of goes along with what Bonnie was saying earlier, how we all are on a different journey and what Lily stated as well. Um, because some people haven't even been aware of any of these waves. And so you can see that there's growth in their families or in their circles of friends and people that they um, that they do life with where they're just coming through um, advances that were some people thought were conquered in the first wave. So it, it's interesting to learn about these waves and to see how some of them are just being learned about and uh, bringing about some change in, in certain circles. Mm -hmm. We also have the second wave. Um, so in the second wave, the big idea here um, beyond what was already you know, talked about on platforms, different platforms for, for feminism, is that middle-class white women are the face of feminism here during the second wave. 
And so, you know, they had discontent with just being homemakers at home. And so they felt like they had a right to be educated and to live economically powerful lives. Um, so we see a lot of them entering into the education world and becoming professors and, and things of that sort. So one of the quotes that we saw a lot in the Levinson chapter was that the personal is political. So we're going to go ahead and read one of our classmates journal who wrote a response to this quote right here. Um, this is from Alexa's journal. So she wrote, I agree with the slogan that personal problems are political problems. The more I think about it, many of the issues women have with jobs, relationships, and children can be linked to a political issue. The sad part is that when women voice their concerns, they are considered crazy and irrational because they are challenging gender dominance and inequality. It makes me think about the angry black woman image. Men try to control the narrative by painting women in a certain light to try and discredit their thoughts and ideas. Yeah, and you know, actually going right along with that, um, there's a woman named Bell Hooks. She's an American author, professor, feminist, and social activist. And when she began to speak up against this just one form uh, or this one face of feminism through the second wave anyway, where it was really the, the white middle class woman that was the face of feminism, she began to, to raise her voice and say, no, you know, there are other experiences, there are other um, women, categories of women or different women experiences that we need to add and bring to the conversation. And she might have been considered an angry black woman when she, you know, raised her voice. Well, she notes in the Levinson book that the second wave feminism initially reacted defensively to the calls from women of color of varying social class and from the third wave, portraying such calls as diminishing of the power of feminism by highlighting differences and identity rather than community and solidarity. And so, you know, I can easily see with, you know, Alexa's thoughts that maybe this is the, the problem that many women face during this time. Mm -hmm. I think that's what led the third wave. Uh, right after that because the third wave you know brought women together I feel like different cultures different races all together um, so in class we were split into three groups to present our views about each wave so we are going to play a video or an audio clip of one of our classmates Emily explaining the third wave of feminism the, the third wave it it kind of went more specific like it now it's focusing more on the individual and the person's identity like how does feminism fit into your identity into your intersectionality categories mm -hmm. so it's very much more specific as opposed to like the first and second waves which were more broad they went over you know women are deserve to be to vote women deserve to be seen as a gender but now it's how does that fit into your yourself so i think emily did a great job explaining third wave and probably a a phrase that would best describe that third wave is intersectional feminism and so now we're going to go ahead and discuss the fourth wave. So it has been said by few that there may actually be four waves of feminism with the fourth wave actually happening now. So we went ahead and interviewed two young ladies to get their thoughts on the fourth wave. First, we'll hear from Faith Chavez, who is a high school senior who planned on attending the University of Texas in the fall to study to become an immigration lawyer. And then we will hear from Clarissa de Leon, who is a tourism marketing manager at Visit Austin in Austin, Texas. You'll hear more about what she does in her interview. I think social media and technology play a very vital role, especially in terms of accessibility. 
because it is so easy now in this day and age to just go online or go on social media and get connected with people you know get connected with different organizations or different movements online blogs um and just be informed on what feminism actually is and i think that really changes um how feminism looks today because depending on what uh, community or environment you grew up in uh, sexism is still you know very prominent especially in certain cultures like the latino culture you know women still have very play very traditional roles and growing up that's that's mindset is kind of kept so if you're not exposed to anything different or you're, you don't see anything different you don't see change then you you don't think that you can so social media it kind of plays that role in and showing especially youth but really women of all ages that there can be a change and they are the change and as for where i see feminism going in the future I think because of social media and because of how accessible it is nowadays that women are going to be more motivated, especially to go out and, you know, the workforce and seek more, um, you know, more jobs in, in, in leadership positions, um, especially, you know, STEM careers. I'm hoping that that's going to take off, you know, and I'm still waiting on that female president. And, you know, it's a, it's a lot of things that are going to be coming in the future, at least I hope, because I feel like this generation of women, you know, they're not going to take no for an answer. So thank you for joining us, Gladysa. Yeah, of course. Glad to be joining y'all and talking about this. This is pretty cool. I'm excited. Yeah, I'm excited to get your perspective as a younger woman than I myself, maybe about the same age as many people in our class, but I'm 43 and you're 31. Um, so you have, uh, based on the, the waves that we've been studying, you're basically have grown up during the third wave of feminism. And so you have your unique perspective on intersectional feminism. And so I wanted to ask you, what is your take on that? Are you a feminist? Um, and what do you think about feminism? Just basically your personal thoughts on it. Sure, yeah. So um, as you mentioned, my name is Clarissa. I work in the tourism sector, hospitality and tourism industry. I work for Visit Austin. And um, basically, like, we're charged with promoting travel to the city of Austin, um, whether that be nationally, internationally. And then um, I, I mainly focus on international travel. Um, and then we also have some folks on the team who also work um, to bring in, um, like, business conventions and meetings. So um, there's a lot of moving parts for the organization. But basically, we're, we're in service of tourism, and we help to support um, the local economy by bringing in um, vis visitors to help uh, improve the local economy. Um, so I think, and I think the interesting thing about like feminism is that um, you know everybody really has their own like definition of what that means, um, which I think is kind of like what is unique to feminism. And so for me, um, like I just kind of try to boil it down to like really like the both most basic definition and for me that would be you know just like the fair and equal treatment of women when we're talking about um like uh when or like when we're kind of playing the comparison game to like women and men i think like more just like being treated equal um and also kind of like fair fair payment for the same job 
Um, so, like, an example would be, so, like, U.S. soccer, right? So, the men's team makes so much more money than the women's team. But the women's team, um, you know, they they make it to the playoffs more often. They've won more championships. And so, um, you know, like, it's when we're thinking of things like that, it's really just kind of, like, fair and equal payment for, you know, doing the same job. And, and obviously, I mean, they're much better at it than the men, no, no diss to the men, but you know what I mean? So like things like that, like just kind of thinking how like we can be um, thinking about just like fairness, equality, um, and especially for me, uh, I think like when it comes to like pay. Is there anything that you, I guess, have to speak to or to say about the fourth wave of feminism? Sure, yeah. Um, and actually, I think, um, so growing up, like you mentioned, you know, I was kind of more part of the third wave and I think that, like, one thing that um, I've learned as we've transitioned from, like, the third to fourth and, like, again, like, the technological advances, so, like, internet and different, like, um, apps and ways of communication is that I, through that, like, actually learned about intersectional feminism. So, you know, when I was younger, um, you know, my kind of idea of, like, feminism was very much, I think, set by, like, European standards right so it was like oh well you know like there's a certain way of looking in order to be like considered um you know like in order to like your or what i'm saying like how like your consideration of what like a beauty standard is and so i think like growing up it was more so like european and like there were only like specific type of women that i saw really in leadership roles and so it didn't like click for me that like as you know, like, a brown person that I could also be, like, a leader to, or that, like, I could see, um, you know, an a- Asian person in the leadership role, or, like, a, um, you know, a black person, or things like that, so I just kind of thought that, like, okay, maybe it was just kind of, like, one voice that we had that was going to help share and, like, really kind of um, bring, like, an entire group of women to the forefront. And so I think that um, by learning about intersectional feminism because of the internet, because of, like, the technological advances, I was able to see that, like, no, like, you know, intersectional encompasses all races, abilities, um, sexual orientations, and so, like, it really kind of widens, like, the group and really our support system, you know what I mean? Because it shows that we have more, more allies. And so that was really cool, something that I kind of, like, learned as we got into the fourth wave. Um, Stay tuned. We'll be back after the break to discuss feminist applications and education today. Welcome back to this week's Transformative Talk. We're Gabby and Amy, and we're your hosts for today. Thanks for joining us for the second part. Um, So for the second part of this podcast, we want to discuss feminist applications and education as it pertains to gender bias that is experienced and performed, as well as discuss the hegemonic forces that are present in early education system and in media. So first we wanna talk about gender bias in education. So Amy, what are some examples that you've seen in the classroom? Oh gosh, there, there are probably so many that I in the past was not aware of, and now being able to learn from the text that we read and some of the videos that we've watched, uh, I'm definitely more aware of some ways that this happens. Um, But in the classroom, one example is um, for teachers, maybe they call on boys more than they do girls because they think boys will have the right answer. 
And so maybe they just think that boys are smarter, or at least that's what that shows. Mm -hmm. Um, Also, maybe girls thinking that whether it's because teachers have said so, or maybe because of things that they've done, girls thinking that they're not as good at math as boys are, or any other subject uh, area for that matter. Yes, I've definitely... Yeah, so there there was a quote with our assignment in class by Cybelle uh, Laquament that, that spoke to this issue about, about the gender bias in math, and maybe it's occurring in other subject areas as well, but she's a math teacher, and she says that when she was working in the math lab at Northwest Vista College, most of her colleagues were, were men. There were only a few women who worked there, and you could always hear the conversation about how men are smarter than women. And that's why there are more male engineers and mathematicians than women. Cybel believes that uh, the education system is aimed in ways like this at shrinking the minds of female students by preventing them from easy access to math and engineering education. Um, and that they're getting female students who are already feeling inferior and, and thinking that they're only meant for inferior positions. So they won't expect more from schools and education systems. Wow. Yeah, I can definitely relate to Cybelle's story completely. Uh, When I was in college for my undergrad, I had to take about six to eight math courses since I wanted to specialize in math for my education degree. And I remember in every single class, I was one of maybe three to five girls in each class. Um, So the classes were predominantly men. And I noticed now looking back that every professor I had for a math class was a man. Um, and any time I would raise my hand in class, whether it was to ask a question or answer a question, I was completely overlooked. It was just, you know, went straight to the boys like, okay, well, they have the answers. Um, and this experience actually has shaped me to not do the same thing in my own classroom today. So kind of what you were saying with Savelle's, um, her own story, uh, I'm trying to not do that as well in my class. So I'm encouraging all of my students in my math class, not just the boys you know, kind of encouraging them to keep practicing those math skills or just, you know, praising them, um, especially the girls, since I've experienced that as well. That's awesome that you recognize that. And, you know, in thinking about that, I also realize that sometimes there's not just gender bias that is enacted upon girls, but also boys. And so making any kind of comment where we say that boys are better than girls or girls are better than boys in some ways, um, um, continue that bias and, and keep it going. So I know sometimes I've heard people say that girls are better communicators. Um, and that, that is just continuing that gender bias as well. Yes. And then, um, the other example too, is the, I need a few strong boys to come help me out. Like, I know I'm guilty of doing that, um, towards the end of the year, it's kind of assuming like, okay, boys, I need you to come help me move some boxes. And now that I'm, you know, taking this class and I'm like, oh, i that's not okay what I did. Um, so kind of going about it a different way and just saying, I just need someone to come help me. It doesn't necessarily have to be a boy or like saying that the boys are stronger than the girls um, in that sense. Yeah, that's an excellent example. And, and that just shows that, I mean, honestly, as teachers, I don't think our intention is ever to go and hurt people or to make girls feel inferior or boys to feel inferior but it's so good to be aware of these things that we've said all along in the past and never realized that we were promoting that gender bias. Mm -hmm. It's like we're aware now of everything that we're saying. Mm -hmm. As Dr. Haddad would say, we're woke. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. 
So not only does this happen in the classroom, but um, within the education system, things like this can occur with administration too at the administrative level. And so uh, one of our classmates, Stella Benavides, uh, spoke to this and she says that she has seen gender bias in the hiring of administrators or teachers. And, and she's heard people say, we need a strong male influence. And she says, don't get me wrong. I think we need a balance, but saying it that way makes it seem as if women cannot portray strength. I feel we can reduce gender bias in our classrooms by first exposing it and soliciting the help of our students to keep us in check. I have done this a couple of times in my class. I tell my class, do you feel like you're stereotyped by your gender? How? We discuss and then I would tell them that we're going to be conscious of this so that if I do it or you do it, someone else does it, we'll call it out. They like it and they really it really helps helps us realize how often we do it without knowing it. So I appreciate that contribution by uh, Stella Benavides speaking to how that happens in administration as well. Yes, I think that's awesome that she's talking about it with her kids and making them aware of what's going on. And especially, you know, at a young age, that's just so important to bring up those critical conversations in class. Exactly. And then also, I guess it kind of plays in the education system too and the extracurricular events, but with sports, um, or even doesn't have to be in education. If you tell someone, oh, you're throwing like a girl um, mm -hmm. or girls sporting events aren't excited as boys events. Um, that's yeah. kind of, you know, it's doing the gender bias thing. Yeah, or to say, for example, that a girl is built like a boy or to make fun of a boy because he has man boobs. And so basically making people inferior because maybe they have uh, something that typically is found in the other gender or making comments where you're comparing them and you're making them feel bad about it. So making fun. And so those things aren't, aren't good at all. Apart from gender bias and inequality in education, we also see objectification of girls through sexualization. It's possible and, and probably likely that this happens to boys as well, but we'll speak to some ways that this happens to, to girls and how they're targeted. Yes, there's, um, I teach in a middle school, uh, middle school level, sixth grade, and recently I witnessed um, the kids playing what they called a game in class, and it was the boys basically slapping or touching the girls behind, and it was a thing that they did on Fridays, and I remember seeing it, and I immediately stopping my lesson to have this conversation with the kids, because obviously one, this isn't right, but two, they didn't know that it wasn't right. Um, so kind of having that conversation with them and make telling the girls and making them aware like, you know, this is not okay. What just happened was something that was unwanted. You know, they did not have your consent to touch your body. And the girls are kind of just laughing about it because to them it's a game like, no, this isn't okay. And telling them, you know, hopefully you never have to experience that when you get older. Um, but you need to stand up for yourself and you need to, you know, put your foot down and say, no, I do not want you touching me. This is not okay. Um, and then I talked to the boys about it because they didn't know that it wasn't okay either and kind of scaring them in a way. I'm like, you know that if you were to do this, I mean, obviously what you did to you right now is sexual assault. You're touching a girl without her permission um, and you can go to jail for that. And I asked um, my boys and girls, I was like, has anyone talked to you about this before? You know, parents or in elementary school, did they bring this up to you? And not a single person, not a single student told me that they had been talked to about it. So it was kind of shocking for me that I was the first one talking to them about this at sixth grade. 
Um, Cause again, they just saw it as a game. So I'm hoping, you know, having that conversation with them will, you know, you know, change their actions later in the future. Um, but then telling the girls too, Hey, it's not just a boy to girl thing. Like, cause the girls were getting a little upset and like, well, if you're going to hit me, I'm going to hit you back. So kind of mm-hmm. telling them it, goes, it goes both ways. You know, you just keep your hands to yourself. Yeah, it's great that you were able to have that conversation with the girls, which actually brings something else to mind. Um, You know, sometimes I think girls misunderstand um, boys wanting to touch them and they think that that's okay because it shows that the boys are desiring them. Mm -hmm. They and it's it's based in the belief that the only way they can be desired is sexually. And so girls need to realize that they have more to offer than just their bodies. They don't have to be objectified. They don't have to be desired sexually to be worth any value at all. Their minds are valuable. um, And what they think and what they bring to class is far more precious than, you know, just allowing boys to step all over them and touch them in ways that are not appropriate. Um, Which brings in dress code. Dress code is, is another way that we see Um, that things could be worded better and and we need to be really careful about how we approach things such as dress code. One of our students, our classmates, um, Stephanie Padilla, commented that in high school uh, she wasn't allowed to wear yoga pants because it shows the curves of of women's bodies, girls' bodies. She said that she believes the rules in school should pertain to both genders so it does not send an unclear message to one gender. Instead of, of stating no yoga pants, Maybe they can change the language to no tight-fitting clothes, and that would pertain to both genders instead. And this is, you know, this is another way that we need to encourage gender um, equality and not just target girls. Yes, and I've seen some other people say as well. Well, um, they the reason the dress code is that way is because it's distracting. That's what it says, or that's what the, I guess what they say about the dress code. And some people are like, well how about you just raise your children to just not look kind of thing, you know, instead mm-hmm. of distracting, which I see that point too. Um, but I've actually have had an experience with this when I was in high school. Um, we had a very strict dress, dress code as well, where it was, you know, the dress couldn't be um, above your knees, right? You had to have your shoulders covered. Um, so one day I decided to wear a dress. I felt like dressing up and I made sure it complied with the dress code. You know, I went to my knees. I had a tank top underneath so I wasn't showing any cleavage uh, and I had a sweater to cover my shoulders and I just wore some little sandals and you know I felt good about my outfit and I go to second period I believe and my teacher who was a male kind of called me up to his desk privately and he suggested that I went to go see the nurse and I was confused as to why and he's like I just you know you probably need to go change your outfit and my argument was well I'm in dress code it's you know, the, it's to my knee, everything I just said. And he, his response was, I'm just saying I wouldn't let my daughter walk out of the house like that. You look a little loose. And it totally, like, confused me. It stunned me because I had mm-hmm. was talking about. And I remember throughout the day, I was so self-conscious. I was constantly pulling down my dress, um, covering, my, covering my body with my sweater because I didn't want to be perceived as something negative. Um, and I thought, you know, that he was right because he was the teacher. Um, he had the authority. So I thought, you know, what he said was true. And then I go home and I'm talking about my day with my mom and I tell her what happened. And she immediately, you know, took pictures of my outfits, emailed the principal. 
um, and it turned into this big thing. And the teacher ended up apologizing, um, but not necessarily apologizing for what he said, but for how he said it. And it was kind of like, well, that's still not an apology. Um, yeah. Yeah. I'm so sorry that happened to you. And, and it's unfortunate that things like that happen. And that's especially why it's so important for us to be made aware of these things mm -hmm. um, and to change it, um, to actually do something about it, to, to bring that change about. And I like that you're able to take that experience and turn it into something good and have those conversations with your students. Mm -hmm. um, but again, I'm so sorry that something like that happened to you. We don't want that to happen to, to anyone else. Yes, we want it. We want to go up from here. In addition to, to the gender bias and inequalities that happen in education, we know that, that this happens in media as well. And one of the big places that people look for media for movies is Disney. And so this is something that we've talked about in our class. And one of our classmates, Erin Sandrin, has a quote about this, which I'll share. She says, well, I love Disney, but it is interesting to see how women have been portrayed over the years. In the past, their characters, such as Cinderella and Aurora, were more of the damsel and distress types. And this, to me, sent the message that women needed men, an old school view of femaleness as being helpless. Children could see this and be influenced by the desire to find a knight in shining armor. Not literally, necessarily, but I think a movie like Brave, Moana, to a degree, or Frozen tend to portray women in a more positive way as um, compared to the way that they were before as being strong and independent. I think this gives children an idea that they can be strong and stand on their own two feet as well. This change in the portrayal to me represents a shift in thinking on Disney's part as they try to play to the sentiments of the times that we are now in. Movies tend to reflect the times. It, took, it looks like women are achieving more equality through their representation in these films currently. I, I definitely see that that the times are changing and it's good that Disney is incorporating no or making movies through a feminist lens now um, mm -hmm. compared to how they were making movies back then. Yeah. Um, and also, you know, Disney, you're introduced to Disney at such a young age, right? Like I know I started watching Disney movies when I was three, maybe four. Um, and in the Levinson chapter, it mentions um, Bronwyn Davies and she examines the daily social interactions of preschool children. And through her, through her research, she's looking specifically at the gender role in education and how they're basically introduced. And she notices, you know, in pre-K or kindergarten, the games that the children are exposed to. It's like, okay, well, you're a girl, so you're going to go play with princesses and babies and the kitchenware. Um, well, you're a boy, so you're going to go play with dragons and firefighters. So the, the students are introduced so early to to their gender and it's like okay well you're gonna do you're gonna play with this because you're a girl and you're gonna play with this because you're a boy whereas now we could be basically um introduce that to all the children you know say just kind of throw everything out there and just say go play with what you want to go play with right not specifically saying you need to go this way and you need to go that way mm -hmm. yeah there's definitely been a, a change in gender roles um, already. And so it, it's good that we continue on that same traje uh, trajectory. I can say personally for my kids in my house with me and my husband. So our parents, my parents and my husband's parents would probably uh, fit more along the line of women do all the work inside the house, they cook, they clean, and men do all the outside work. Um, 
that's kind of switched in in a lot of cases in my home i don't do the majority of the cooking my husband does and um i'm just as happy to go work outside and help them with things outside and fix things for the kids as well so i'm glad that we're free to do that that we don't feel like we have to be stuck in some gender role that someone else has predetermined for us um and and that's part of the joy of what feminism has done uh for us is to bring light to these things and and everyone is at a different stage like we talked for about before in our first um our first part of the episode but you know everyone is at a different place and we don't need to judge anyone for whatever place they're at but it's so great to bring um education and shine the light on these things that we've just lived with for so long and see that it's okay to to break free from some of these roles yes and so we've talked about you know the issues that we see in the education system but now it's asking that question so now how do we address it and how do we change it um and our peer trisha she actually um put a discussion post and she says, it is challenging to reduce gender discrimination in the classroom because gender discrimination is so prevalent in virtually all aspects of American society outside of the classroom. I think one of the things that we can do is to address it head on by having discussions, debates about gender inequalities present both inside and outside of the classroom. Giving students a chance to hear and be heard instead of merely dictating to them what is right and wrong could have longer lasting and potentially more beneficial effects. Yeah. Yeah. So speaking along those same lines of, you know, what's the solution? What can we do to be part of the solution? I'm going to go ahead and share um, some stories of one of my friends and uh, I'll just preface it with this, give you a little bit of my background and, and her background. I grew up in the church and, and I'm a Christian and she is too. And she's one of my spiritual mentors that I look up to. And I so appreciate her, her voice that she lends to different um, issues. And I noticed, and I never realized it until we started reading and, and learning about feminism, that a lot of what she does is um, encourage equality in gender roles. And maybe you wouldn't expect that from a Christian woman, a strong uh, Christian woman, but she definitely does that. And I, I admire that about her. So here's some of the stories that I've learned from her. Uh, she, she shared that she had a lot of male bosses and she says that, you know, some of her male bosses, they've been the type of men that only see one way of doing things and they're just stuck on that one way. And she says they fail to realize and recognize that some women can give them 10 different ways to solve the same problem to get the thing done. And so she, she definitely encourages women um, and knows that they have strengths. And when she talks about those male bosses, she doesn't say they're all that way but she does realize that some are. And so we have to be able to speak back to that and be able to have those conversations with, with people. Okay, so one of the TED Talks that we had to watch for our facilitation for feminism was from Rowan Cox Rubin. And she talked about how based on research, it's not enough to make people aware of gender discrimination. We have to be explicit about our disapproval of gender inequality. So again, it's talking about not just address, you know, talking about the issues, but addressing them and saying, how are we going to fix it? How are we going to change this now? Exactly. And being explicit about offering an actual solution, an actual real specific solution that's going to target that gender inequality. So yeah, I agree with that. So to conclude this podcast, we're going to go ahead and leave you with a quote from our Levinson chapter. Um, and it says, historically, questioning gender roles and performance 
empowering the disempowered, and educating in new ways have all been considered profane, transgressing against a perceived sacred structure. But what if the temple is one that oppresses people and perpetrates oppression through silencing the voices of women, people of color, people of the third world, and those raised in dissent against the destruction of our environment? Perhaps it is fitting, after all, to just about the profanity of our F word, feminism, and reclaim it to color our new kaleidoscopic lens of feminisms. Amen to that, sister. In conclusion, um, we wanted to go ahead and share some, some other places that you can go and further study feminism and um, just become more aware of feminism, its history, and what we can do in education or whatever it is that we do to uh, support gender equality. And so in The Feminist Philosophy Reader by Alison Bailey and Chris Cuomo, there are several essays in that book. Uh, also, at the end of chapter one, A Feminist Turn in Philosophy, there is a list of books and essays for further reading. This list consists of work from Gloria E. Ansaldoa, Claudia Card, and Moira Gattens. So we hope you go ahead and look into those if you want to further your reading. And that's all for this episode. Thanks for listening. And remember, if you want to support what we do, then share, subscribe, and leave a review wherever you discovered our show. That's all for now. But I'll see you in the next episode of The Transformative Talk. Bye. Bye.